Our sermon text reading comes from the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. We are journeying, uh, continuing our journey through the book of Ephesians. And this morning we have come to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. If you have been around uh, the Christian faith or the Christian tradition uh, for any amount of time, you are likely familiar with the question of what is your testimony? What is your testimony? Or maybe you've been asked this question in a different way, you perhaps have been asked, what is your story? Typically, when this is asked, the person or group of people want to know the events surrounding uh, what took place in your life that brought you to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're seeking to understand the, the, the sequence of events that led you to coming to trust in Jesus. And the first church that I attended when I became a Christian, uh, that church would often have what is known as Testimony Sundays. It would be times when individuals would share how they came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. These Sunday services would give people the opportunity to share how Christ in very miraculous ways and in very ordinary ways saved someone. And I would often leave those moments, those services with my heart so encouraged by how Christ brings individuals to himself at various times and in various ways. Here at Redeemer, I've gotten to know many of your stories. And in my short time here, I know for a fact that we are a, uh, a bunch of very different people who have very different stories. Some of you were raised in a Christian home and you never know a day of not knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and that story is worth celebrating. Some of you, others of you came to faith later in life. There perhaps was a, a period of crisis and the Lord used that to draw you to himself and that is worth celebrating as well. And here in Ephesians chapter two, we have the Apostle Paul telling us the testimony of every single Christian. You see, Christians, past, present, and future, all share the same exact story. We, at our most basic level, share the same testimony. You see, while the, the details of our stories may be a little different and they may vary from degree to degree, the Apostle Paul is arguing that every person who has ever come to the Lord Jesus Christ has the same story. 
Christians at Ephesus were a diverse group of people. They were made up of Jews and Gentiles. And yet Paul can say, if you are a Christian, then the both of you share the same story in Christ. Paul in our text this morning tells us that we all were once dead, but now we have been made alive. So Christian, what is your testimony? What is your story? Your testimony, your story is that you were once dead, but now you have been made alive. Your story is the very story of the gospel. Your story is the story of death and resurrection. Last Sunday, we were reminded as we looked at Ephesians chapter two, verses one to three, that all of us were dead. We weren't spiritually sick. We weren't broken, we weren't lipping along. We were those who were spiritually dead. We were lifeless. We needed not a resuscitation, but we needed nothing short than a resurrection. And in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul turns a corner. He tells us that what we needed the most, God has provided freely in Jesus. It is to say that we needed God to intervene on our behalf. We needed someone outside of us to do something about the situation that we could not change. Ephesians chapter two, verses one to 10 hinges on those first two words in verse four, but God, after Paul paints a very grim picture of humanity and lays out that we all deserve wrath because of our sin, he adds those beautiful words that encapsulate the message of the gospel. He says, but God, you were dead, but God. You were enslaved, but God. You were a a child of wrath, not a child of mercy, but God. As if you read these, these, these two words, you, you, you hear someone stepping in, a hero has come to save the day. These two words are like someone turning on a light switch in a dark room. God has broken in, he has intervened, his grace has exploded in the darkness of our lives and he has brought life where there was death. This morning as we look at Ephesians chapter two, verses four to 10, we are going to see all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We are going to see how God has brought us from hell to heaven, from gloom to light, from wrath to glory, from death to life. If I could sum up this entire text in in one word, I would say that the word that most encapsulates all of Ephesians 2 is the word grace. Grace is one of the most glorious words in all of the Bible. Paul in this text is magnifying the the, the grace of God. We Christians love to make much of the, the grace of the gospel and rightfully so. We write hymns and sing songs that extol how God has, has been gracious to us. We sing songs like Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a rich like me. Or another one, Marvelous Grace of our Lord, grace that exceeds all our guilt and our sin. Or perhaps another one, wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin, how shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its praise begin? We are a people who magnify the grace of God. And it is my prayer this morning that as we look at these seven verses, that we would leave here making much of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I likely won't tell you any new information, but if you leave this place with a song in your heart about how God has been gracious to you, then we have reason to rejoice. I want us to look at our text under two headings this morning. I want us to see what God has done, and then I want us to see why has he done it. So what God has done, and then why has he chosen to do this? So first, what God has done. In verse four, before telling us what God has done for his people, Paul tells us something concerning the nature and character of God. He tells us about two blessings, two things that we have been given. He tells us about the mercy of God and the love of God. It's as if Paul is trying to get the Ephesian Christians to understand the basis of God's actions towards them. If you look at it in verses one to three, they tell us about our spiritual problem. And in verses five to six, we see God's solution to that problem. But here in verse four, Paul gives us the reason why God has chosen to do something about our situation. Paul wants these Christians to know that what God has done says so little about them, but it says so much about God. Take a look at verse four. The text says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Paul first describes God as one who is merciful. To say that God is merciful is to say that he does not give us what we truly deserve. We as sinners are those who have broken his law. We are those who deserve wrath, but God withholds his wrath and in that he extends mercy. God is merciful to those who in Ephesians chapter two, verse three, who were once children of wrath. Paul is picking up on a theme that is woven throughout the Old and New Testament scriptures that God is a God of mercy. Perhaps you remember Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, Moses tells God, God, show me your glory. And God reveals himself to Moses by telling Moses who he is. And God tells Moses that he is a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In Psalm 103, David describes God as one who does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. In Micah 7:18, we are told that God delights and showing mercy. Paul wants us to understand that God has acted on our behalf. He has changed our situation because God is merciful. That God's demonstration of his mercy is the fact that he has made us alive together with Christ. Mercy is not something that that God simply gives, but it is something that comes from his very being, comes from his very character. Notice that wonderful adjective that Paul places in front of the word mercy. Paul says that God is rich in mercy. We can say that God is rich in a number of different ways. We can say that he is rich in wisdom and knowledge. We can say that he is rich in in, in resources because he owns everything. But as one writer points out, it is only here in the Bible where God is described as being rich in something. What does it mean that God is rich in mercy? God being rich in mercy means that an infinite God who has no beginning and no end 
is able to give in an infinite amount of mercy. It means that God will never have to file bankruptcy because he gave out too much mercy. It means that God never runs out of mercy for his people, that when it comes to the mercy of God, you never have to worry that you came to God and he tells you, I have nothing left for you. And isn't this wonderful news that God cannot run out of mercy? I don't know about you, but I know that I don't need just a little mercy. I need a whole bunch of mercy, amen? God gives mercy to sinners. Because God is rich in mercy, he has more than enough mercy to give to each and every one of us. Paul makes mention not only of the mercy of God, but he also turns the corner and says something about the love of God. He says in the second half of verse four, because of the great love with which he loved us. You hear that repetition that Paul uses, that great love with which he loved us? Paul is using repetition for emphasis. He's making an emphatic point. He wants us to understand the greatness of the love of God. Not only is God rich in mercy, but he also is great in his love for his people. As you read that phrase, it feels as if Paul can, can hardly contain himself, that he's willing to break down the, the, the usage of grammar to say something about the, the love of God. Later in Ephesians chapter three, Paul is going to say and pray that the people of God would be rooted and grounded in love so that they would have the strength to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of God which surpasses all knowledge. Notice when God loved us. Paul says in the first half of verse five that God loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. See, Paul is re-emphasizing our desperate condition. He's telling us that God's grace broke into our lives when we were at our lowest point. You see, Paul is driving home this point that God's love for you existed even when you were dead in your sin. It is to say that God does not love you because of your loveliness. He loves you because he loves you. The greatness of the love of God is seen in the object of his love. Paul says something similar in Romans chapter five, verse eight, but God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, God didn't wait for you to clean yourself up before he loved you. He loved you when your life was a hot mess. He loved you when you were lifeless. God's love for his people is not predicated on their ability to clean themselves up or to get their act together. If God waited for any of us to clean ourselves up, that love would have never came. Friends, why did God deliver you from death? Because he loves you. He has loved you with a great love. And Paul moves on and he describes how God demonstrates his mercy and love by telling us what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that God has done three things for us. Because of God's rich mercy and great love, he does not leave us dead, but instead he made us alive. He raised us up and he seated us. Listen to verses five to six. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul first tells us that God has made us alive together with Christ in verse five. Paul is speaking of the reality that those who were once dead are dead no longer. He is saying that God has brought spiritual life to those who were spiritually dead. Just as, made, just as God made Christ alive after his death in a tomb, so too has he done this spiritually for his people. One of my favorite scenes in all of the Bible is found in Ezekiel chapter 37. God does something extraordinary. He brings the, the prophet Ezekiel to a valley of dead bones. Ezekiel looks at these dry and dusty bones. And as Ezekiel is standing there looking at these bones, God tells him something crazy. He says, Ezekiel, preach to these bones. Begin to declare, to God, begin to de- declare these bones that they can live. And what happens next is shocking. Just imagine if God came to you and told you to stand in the middle of a cemetery and just begin preaching. And Ezekiel obeys God's command, and as he does so, he begins to hear those bones rattle. He begins to see skin attached to those bones, and next thing you know, standing before him is a body of people who were once bones, but now they have been made alive. Listen to what God says in Ezekiel 37, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. Beloved, Paul is saying, that what happened in Ezekiel is happening spiritually to the people of God. You see, we didn't need more, more morality. We didn't need just a, a little extra religion. We didn't need just a makeover. We needed God to bang on our casket and tell us it's time to get up. Friends, God has made us alive. He has given us new life where we were once dead. He has breathed spiritual life into our souls same power that brought life to the lifeless body of the Lord Jesus Christ has brought you spiritual life. This is why Paul can say in verse 6 that God has raised us up with Christ. You see, Paul understands that our salvation is nothing short of a spiritual resurrection. Christ was raised, and by the working of his Holy Spirit, you have been raised. Again, Christian, what is your testimony? Your testimony is that you have been raised from the dead. One of the most beautiful things about seeing someone become a Christian is that you are literally seeing a resurrection taking place. You're not seeing someone just become a better human human being. You are seeing someone go from death to life. And not only does Paul say that we have been made alive and raised with Christ, But he also says, shockingly, that we have been seated with Christ. Verse six, and God seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here Paul is speaking of the ascension of Christ. That after Jesus was raised from the dead, 40 days later he ascended to the right hand of God the Father and sat on on his throne. This is a picture of redemptive accomplishment. Christ's work is complete and now he sits enthroned in heaven with royal splendor at his, the right hand of his father. And what Paul says next is absolutely stunning. 
He says that what is true of Christ is also true of those who belong to Christ. What is true of Jesus is also true for the Christian. Paul says that right now you and I are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This means that right now, Christian, you are seated in two places. You are seated on those hard brown pews, but you are also seated in heaven with Christ at his right hand. It is to say that you have two zip codes. You have an earthly zip code, but you also have a heavenly zip code. As Christ sits enthroned in glory, he represents all those who belong to him. We are so intimately connected to Jesus Christ that where he sits, we also sit as well. This is particularly poignant coming from the Apostle Paul because do you know where Paul is sitting as he's writing this letter? Paul's writing this letter as he sits in jail. Paul can say that I'm sitting in this Roman prison and yet at the same time, I am seated with the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be seated? What does being seated with Christ mean on a ground level? There's so much we can say, but let me say this, knowing the truth that you are seated with Christ means that you do not have to be obsessed with having a seat at the table of the kingdoms of this world. See, your seat in the coming kingdom is secure. The seat that you can never lose is the one that Jesus is seated on. It's one that you share with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that we have been made alive, we have been raised, and we have been seated with Christ. And here's what Paul is doing. Paul is laying out all of these blessings, and he's saying that the blessings that Christ has received, you have received as well. As he talks to them about the story of their lives, he, in a very real sense, is sharing the story of Christ, that the story of Christ has been the story of all those who are united to Christ. That what defines the people of God is not their circumstances. It is not what has happened to them. It's not their geographical location or what their eyes can see, but what defines them is the unshakable reality that they are in union, they are in Christ, that their story becomes the story of Christ, that his blessings are their blessings. See, when you become a Christian, you are brought into fellowship with the very person of Christ. This is what God has done for us. He has done all of these things in Christ and poured out these wonderful blessings. What Paul does next in verses eight to nine is he drives home all of this understanding that what God has done for us in Jesus Christ is nothing short than the result of God's grace. Everything that we have been given in Christ, every spiritual blessing, Every newfound identity, God's rescuing of us, is all the result of divine grace. Paul wants these Christians to understand that they have been saved by grace and grace alone. Salvation in its totality is all of grace. Listen to what Paul says in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. How are we saved? How have we been united to the Lord Jesus Christ and receive all of the blessings that flow from them? 
You see, we are granted every one of these blessings by grace and grace alone. Paul undergirds all of the blessings of this passage with the word grace. If you notice, he says the statement, by grace you have been saved twice in this passage. He says it in verse five and then again in verse eight. Grace is the undeserved favor of God. Salvation is of grace because salvation is the undeserved favor of God. It's something that you cannot earn by the works of your own hands. Paul makes that clear in the second half of verse eight and in verse nine he says, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift from God, not the results of works that no one may boast. Friends, salvation being from the grace of God alone means that you could not in your own ability do anything to earn salvation. You see, the Christian faith loudly and firmly and clearly says that you cannot work hard enough to earn salvation. And this is the exact opposite of what we hear in our society, isn't it? You see, we live and move and breathe in the context that says if you just work hard enough, if you hustle or grind enough, then you will get whatever you're striving to receive. We live in a hardworking city with people who will grind and get it by any means. But what we hear in this passage before us is that the work of our own hands means nothing when it comes to salvation. Salvation is a gift that we receive by faith, Paul says. If you look throughout the New Testament, Paul never says that we, we are saved by faith. We're not saved by our own faith, but faith is the instrument by which we receive Christ. You can think of it in this way, when one is sick and they are in need of life-saving medicine, the doctors administer the medicine through a syringe. See, the syringe is simply an instrument that is used to receive the medicine. One is not saved by the syringe, they are saved by the medicine that is administered through the syringe. And this is how Paul describes faith throughout the New Testament. Faith is this sincere trust in Christ and in what he has done. It is us looking outside of ourselves and towards Christ for salvation. Faith is how we grab a hold of the grace of God. We are saved by grace through faith. By faith, we grab a hold of Christ and all that belongs to Christ. You see, there's something that naturally moves in our hearts that drifts towards this posture of seeking to earn the favor of God or to subtly believe that God saved me because I'm a pretty decent person. We begin to relate to God not on a, the basis of grace, but one that is based on works. And beloved, hear me clearly, your salvation is all from the grace of God. Your right standing before God is a gift that he has bestowed upon you freely apart from anything that you have done. The same grace that brought you into the Christian faith is the same grace that keeps you in the Christian faith. Why has God done it this way? Why has he made salvation freely a gift of grace? For one simple reason, and that is so that no one would boast. You see, the grace of God suffocates our ability to make much of ourselves, doesn't it? 
Our achievements, our possessions, our abilities all mean nothing when it comes to our salvation. When we truly understand the freeness of salvation, we'll have no reason to think that somehow this is because of me. Friends, the grace of God should humble us. It should make us a lowly people. The grace of the gospel should suffocate all pride in a society that tells us to make much of ourselves, the gospel comes in and says, no. Dear Christian, when you stand before your Redeemer in glory, nothing in your story, nothing in your life, nothing in the glory that awaits you in eternity, nothing of that will you be able to say, I did this with my own hands. No, when you stand before Christ your Savior, you will cast your crown at his feet and sing all of his praises because you know that salvation is of him and from him alone. Not only does Paul tell us why God has done all these things for us, but he also tells us why God has done this. That's our second point, why God has done this. Why has God saved us? In verse 7, Paul gives us the reason for why God has done these things. Take a look at verse 7. Paul says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What, what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that God has done all of these things for his people in Christ so that you and I might be testimonies of his grace and kindness. It is this idea that God has rescued us because of his grace and mercy so that we might be exhibitors or exhibits of his transforming grace and mercy. I've been a big fan of the NBA, and if you've ever gone into an NBA stadium or a sports stadium in, in general, you can look at the top of the stadium and you can see the championship banners that hang from that stadium. Those championship banners say something about the championship team. It says something about the organization. It, it testifies to the glory of that specific team. Those banners, again, are, 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 are symbols of the glory of the organization. And what Paul is saying is that God has made us alive. He has raised us up and he has seated us with Christ so that we would be banners of his grace. That in the stadium of his creation, both now and in the age to come, that all who would look upon the people of God would see something of the grace and glory of Jesus. We are living and breathing pictures of his transforming work. This is why Paul says in verse 10 that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. See, the Greek word that Paul uses for workmanship is the word from which we get our English word poem. It's a word that refers to artistry. It's a word you would use to refer to a great painting or a piece of music or a, or a sculpture. You see, God's people are works of art that display his glory. A piece of art says something about the artist. This language that Paul uses is new creation language. The people of God are called to testify to the glory and grace of God. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says that, that as the, the rulers and the powers in the, uh, in the heavenly places, as they look upon the church, they see something about the wisdom and knowledge of God. 
Friends, as you look at your brothers and sisters in Christ, as you look at your own life, you should see a testimony to the all-prevailing grace of God. Beloved, this is why we exist. We are trophies of divine grace. But as you look around this sanctuary and see the people of God gathered, you see God's grace at work. Those who look at us should see what the grace of God can do. Paul concludes this beautiful section of Ephesians by stating that we were created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you remember what Paul said about our walking in verse two at the beginning of this chapter? He says that we once walked in trespasses and sin. He says that, you see, that that we were once walking down the highway of sin and now God has removed us from that. It has us walking on a different street. Now we walk down a, a paved road of grace. We used to walk in death, have now been alive, so we are called to walk in the good works that God has prepared for us. Do you see what Paul is, is doing here? Paul has been clear that you and I are not saved by the works of our hands. But he's also saying that the grace of God, as it transforms the people of God, it creates a people who are doing good works. It is to say that good works do not save us, but God's grace does produce in us the desire to do good works. Titus chapter two, verse 14, Paul says, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see, the grace of God creates a people who do not rely on their own good works for salvation, but they are a people who get busy at doing good works. To state it plainly, you and I have been saved in order to serve. We are saved in order to serve. The grace of God produces in us not a a life that that leads to reckless behavior, but lives that, that instead pursue others and serve others. It's worth asking, what do the good works, what do these good works look like? The list could be endless. In the Bible, good works, the language of good works often speaks of practical acts of mercy, kindness, and sacrificial love for others. In other words, when we think about good works, we're thinking about ways in which we can pour ourselves out for others. To be as practical as I can, I think it's worth every one of us asking the question this week, who can I serve and then actually serving them? Think of your fellow church members. Think of your neighbors, the people who move and dwell around you, your classmates at school. Who in your life can you serve and who can you minister to? Friends, we are God's workmanship. And as his workmanship, we are called to exhibit his love and grace to a world that is clouded in darkness. It was Jesus who told us, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your heavenly Father who sits in heaven. God in his grace has saved us so that we might be raised to the newness of life, so that we might be pictures of his grace. And friends, this is our testimony. This is our story. We've gone from death to life, from wrath to glory, and we have done it by grace through faith in Christ so that we might be pictures of his grace.
Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, help us believe that all these things are true. We ask that your grace would be the very oxygen that we breathe as your people. We ask that your grace would transform us into a people who serve others in gracious and merciful ways. We thank you for the gift of your son, and we look to him in faith. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.